politicians and wars and ballot issues. Oh my, how much of that are we going to be able to cover today? Find out next on Principles and Policies. Hello, this is Chuck Michaelis, formerly the chair of the Institute for Principal Policy, and I say formerly because there isn't an Institute for Principal Policy anymore. It's a defunct entity. I'm, uh, it's been in the midst of being dissolved. Uh, there aren't. There, basically, I'm the last standing guy and can't run it on my own. And right now, I don't have time to go out and recruit new members. So uh, there is no Institute for Principal Policy anymore. Well, what's going on out there in the world, folks? If, if you're not paying attention, we're in a time of uh, deep crisis. Why are we in deep crisis? Well, we're in deep crisis because for a number of reasons. We, we do have politicians. We have things going on in the House of Representatives with trying to pick a new House Speaker. A lot of people who don't really understand what's happening, don't really have a background on it, are very disappointed that somebody like Steve Scalise is not going to be the Speaker of the House and Kevin McCarthy is no longer Speaker of the House. Uh, let me tell you something. Scalise and McCarthy were interchangeable. Kevin McCarthy is out because he lied to the conservative caucus and essentially depended upon the Democratic caucus in a Republican-controlled house to keep his job. And what happened was he was, uh, Kevin McCarthy was betrayed by the, the Democratic caucus, uh, Nancy Pelosi, who basically had come out and said, don't worry, Kevin, we're, we're behind you. We'll make sure nothing happens to you. And then when, when things went kind of south, what did she do? She did nothing. This is what happens when you trust someone who is not trustworthy. And Nancy Pelosi has proved over and over and over and over and over and over again that she is not trustworthy, especially when she makes promises to people that she considers her sworn enemy, and that's the Republican side of the aisle. The people like Kevin McCarthy are the people who, quote-unquote, want to reach across the aisle and do bipartisan uh, uh, legislation and that, those kinds of things. Uh, we, we refer to these people as swamp creatures. Uh, what do we mean? The swamp of Washington, D.C. If you remember one of Donald Trump's things that he didn't get done was he wanted to drain the swamp. And he, and he tried to start draining the swamp, and he found out that the swamp was much larger and much more nefarious and much more all-pervasive in Washington, D.C. than even he realized. And he unfortunately ended up with swamp creatures in his entourage in the White House. And those people led him astray on who to hire for people like chief of staff and who to hire for the Justice Department. I'm thinking of former Attorney General Barr, who proved his swamp creatureliness, <laughs> if you will, by with the things that he did. Now, he came out and, and uh, pretended to be only interested in justice and those kinds of things. He wasn't interested in justice at all. Nothing happened to people who, uh, on the left side, and everything is happening to people on the conservative side. Of course, after uh, uh, Biden came in, we, we got the fictions of the J6 insurrection, and we've gone through this before, the insurrection. Why an insur When an insurrection isn't an insurrection? Well, when it's not one, because that wasn't one. That was a protest where people let themselves get out of control and allowed uh, agent provocateurs 
many of whom were Justice Department employees and intelligence agency employees. And I'm not saying this in a paranoid fashion. When, when Merrick Garland was asked how many agents were there on J6 and how many of them were encouraging people to go into the House, he refused to answer, which means they were there and they, they were doing exactly that. They were encouraging people to go into the House and now, do I think that some of the there were some of the people who needed to be prosecuted for what they did, and that was engaging riot inside the the uh, chambers of the United States uh, Capitol? The answer is yeah. They need to go to jail, and they need to pay fines, and they need to be held up. But when you start convicting people who weren't there and who were not involved for being quote-unquote co-conspirators in this uh, seditious activity, you got a problem on your hands, a major problem on your hands. And we have a major problem on our hands. We have uh, political prosecutions. This is nothing new, by the way. Uh, Political prosecutions have been going on for years, decades. Things that people on one side of the aisle do versus things that people do on the more favored side of the aisle do. Well, the people on the unfavored side of the aisle go to jail and pay fines and have their lives destroyed. People on the on the correct side of the aisle get reprimands and censures and go to and misdemeanor charges. This goes on and has gone on forever. Look look at what's going on with Hunter Biden. Had this uh, you know contrast what's happening with Hunter Biden who was involved in taking bribes from Ukraine, from China, from Russia. And he was involved in taking uh, giant bribes and passing them along to his father, the big guy, as he was called. This went on and has gone on, and Hunter Biden, they're, the Justice Department is doing everything they can to minimalize the charges. Uh, had this been a Republican who'd done the same thing, he he would be already thrown in the deepest, darkest dungeon in the uh, worst prison available. Again, corrupt Republicans, corrupt Democrats, they all deserve to be A, out of office, B, convicted of their corruption and serve jail time and pay fines. Is that happening? No, it's not. One side is being prosecuted. We, we've got, look, we've got, prop, uh, we all know what happened this, this last weekend. All of us know what happened this last weekend. The horrors that went on in the Gaza Strip, in Israel, and the uh, the things that are going on right now with the Israeli Defense Fund essentially um, going in and uh, retaliating uh, for what went on there in Israel. We can argue whether those are occupied territories, blah, 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 blah. doesn't matter. It's a terrorist act. If you're going to fight a war of independence, if you will, you can look at other wars of independence. Wars of independence, you know, if they want to fight the Israeli Defense Force to make themselves independent of Israel and their own nation, then they need to follow the precedents set by others who were fighting wars of independence. And that is, you don't kill civilians. You don't take hostages. You don't behead babies and burn them and those kinds of things. And we've all seen those photos. I know a number of people who don't believe those are real. 
um, who believe that they're they're ginned up for propaganda purposes. Maybe, maybe not. I tend to believe that this actually happened. I tend to believe that the, those those particular photographs are real. Uh, have no reason not to believe that. I know that people were uh, taken hostage and murdered who were attending a music conference or a music conference, a, a concert. Folks, it's really sad and sickening. A that we've gotten to the point where we can't trust the media to the point to know whether or not what they're telling us is true. The chances are that much of what they're telling us isn't true. But that being said, um, there is a terrible animosity on the left for Israel. And there's a little too much idolatry on the right of Israel. And it's the stuff on the right tends to be a, uh, an outgrowth of the uh, end times viewpoints of those who were involved in that idolatry. I I, ha I know someone who I love dearly who uh, just signed up for a trip to Israel in the spring. And I said, I was teasing her a little bit. I said, jump the gun a little bit on that trip to Israel in the spring, didn't you? And she goes, I may have. <laughs> Because I don't expect this to be a short life. Uh, once these things bubble over, these conflicts bubble over, they tend to last for a while until the sides get together and, and uh, uh, pummel each other for a while. And then the weaker side basically says, let's go back and regroup. And that's exactly what they do. They go back and regroup. That's what I kind of expect. But how long is it going to be before the whole thing peters out? How many bombs are going to be laid in, on civilian targets, when I say bombs, I mean bombs planted in train stations, at bus stops, carried in satchels, on buses, on public transportation, into buildings. How much of that is going to go on? How long can you continue to fight against civilians? You, you're not supposed to do that. Now, on the other side, here's the problem that is faced. There are children who are combatants on the other side. In past conflicts, really before the 20th century, you didn't have partisans who sent their children in wired with bombs for the glory of God, which is what they're claiming, the glory of Allah, which is what the claim is. In the West, we don't have any such tradition. We don't. We protect our women and our children. We don't send them in to kill themselves to gain the greater glory for Allah. Uh, and that's what we're dealing with. Now, do all Muslims think that way? The answer is no, they don't. Some of them are, are a little more influenced by maybe what they've seen in the West. But the, uh, this is what we're facing now. And this is what the Israelis are facing. And the Palestinians are essentially facing uh, the retaliation of the Israeli defense uh, force, which is not noted for uh, pulling a punch, if you will. I think they're already feeling the brunt, the heat. You know, in America, we've had uh, many, many, many arguments, especially since World War II, uh, when we were engaged in bombing civilian targets. Now, ostensibly, they were, they were military targets. But, for instance, how can anyone 
justify the firebombing of Dresden and the and the firestorm in Dresden, which just simply killed everybody. You know, sucked all the oxygen out of out of the the city while it burned. How can we justify the firestorms in Tokyo uh, that killed most all virtually hundreds of thousands of civilians? You know, more people died in the firebombings in Tokyo and Yokohama and a couple other places. More people died than with the atomic blasts in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And uh, again, those were aimed at military targets, Nagasaki more so, and yet still thousands and thousands of people, you know, uh, died. Some of them instantly, the lucky ones died instantly, and the unlucky ones died from radiation poisoning and that kind of thing over uh, months and years' time. But here's what was going on in Japan at the time. Japan was busy training its civilians to act as suicide defenders, men, women, children, to arm themselves with grenades and bombs and those kinds of things to rush invaders when they came ashore uh, after the invasion of Japan. And and I'm not convinced that uh, the death toll in Japan of American and allied uh, British, Australian, Canadian, uh, French, all the people who would be involved in the in the invasion of Japan, that the casualties would not have been absolutely astronomical for all those countries. Why? Because Japan was defending its home island, and it was willing to let women and children uh, and old men and the infirm and whatever else get involved in the fight rather than having soldiers fight it out. This is a this is a 20th century thing. Although we see it in the Bible, I think I'm thinking in terms of Judges four, uh, Jael, Sisera. Sisera was uh, in flight from a battle, and he went into the tent of Jael. J a e l Jael. Uh, so this is again Judges four. And uh, she fed him, you know, he was exhausted from battle, and she fed him warm milk. Well, folks, speaking as a biochemist, warm milk has a lot of tryptophan in it, and tryptophan is a sleep inducer. So this exhausted man drank warm milk and thought he was in the tent of a friend, and as soon as he went to sleep, she took a tent peg and a mallet and drove that tent peg through his head. Now, this is one of those places where uh, did a non-combatant get involved in the battle? Yes. Um, Jail is considered a hero of the faith for uh, doing this. Uh, it, it's a cruel thing, though, if you think about it. You think about driving a tent peg through somebody's head. Um, it, it, is, it would be a difficult thing for uh, anyone to do, let alone this woman who's been... Uh, you know, uh, left alone ostensibly because her husband's off fighting the battle against uh, Cicero's people. Um, so she gets involved as a civilian in, in defending uh, her homeland and and her property and her life. Uh, and that does happen. Uh, uh, think of some of the things, some of the people who were partisans in the Civil War, with so-called Civil War, which was really the war between the states. Um, and if you think that exposes me as something, whatever. Uh, uh, go to principledpolicy.com and send me an email. Um, that being said, 
um, the uh, uh, a lot of people, uh, younger men, like Jesse James was quite young when he joined uh, some of the uh, quote-unquote guerrilla fighters. Well, wh- what were the guerrilla fighters doing? They were fighting the Union who was committing atrocities in Missouri. Uh, I'm not excusing either side uh, because guys like Qu- uh, Captain Quantrill, Captain being in quotes, Captain Quantrill, who, who also committed atrocities, uh, John Brown committed atrocities before the war even started. Um, he hacked people to death with uh, broadswords. Um, he went around and picked some someone who he knew was pro-Southern, uh, pro-slavery in Kansas and, and hacked them to death in the middle of the night. And what did he get for it? He didn't get anything for it. Uh, that, that Those kinds of things go on, and it, it tends to create a, a an atmosphere of uh hatred and discontent and um um dissatisfaction um are we going through a little bit of a split like that right now yeah i think i i, I someone asked me once what how i would describe our current situation i said we're about 1859 with the uh, uh, the splits among us, uh, the viewpoint of of uh, one group versus another, liberal versus conservative, if you will, I'd say Republican versus Democrat. But there are a lot of Republicans and Democrats who are in deep agreement. They're 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 uh, uh, Republicans who are, are the ones who would be the first ones to violate the party platform on things like abortion on things like uh, limited government, on things like regulation, uh, those kinds of things, they'll vote with the Democrats every time. Why? Because they're not really in tune with the Republican platform. The Republican platform and the Democratic platforms are built in convention. This is why the convention, you have to remember, the convention is the most powerful body in uh, in any political structure. This is uh, uh, just to segue a little bit. This is why um, this is why the uh, um, the movement to have a convention of states is essentially would be a sucker's move, if you will. It, it, it it's a bad idea. It basically is going to make things like the Second Amendment and the First Amendment uh, will be deeply modified so that uh, government is in charge. Rather than saying the government has no right to restrict these things, it would say, well, the government has the right to restrict them under certain circumstances. Uh, but let's go back to the uh, the issue at hand. Um, we have to understand that what's going on in Israel and the Gaza is... Years of pent-up frustration. Uh, all the Israelis want is to be left alone. And here's w- one of the bottom lines here. I, I don't understand the idea that uh, uh, somehow the uh, the Palestinians are oppressed when they can run for the Knesset, which is the, the Israeli Parliament, they can run for the Knesset and hold seats and do run for the Knesset and hold seats in areas where the uh, uh, so-called Palestinians are in a majority. They elect Palestinian uh, representatives into the Knesset 
and there are deals that are made in the Knesset between uh, the the different varying parties. There, uh, I, some of them, I think there's a separate party for those members, but they form coalitions in the parliament to get things done, voting usually with uh, the more liberal, uh, but not always. It depends. Um, but uh, what that's one thing that a lot of people that are on one side or another of this conflict don't understand, that there are people who are serving um, in the legislature in Israel who are not Jewish or, um, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of people that are Jewish in Israel that aren't religious at all. It's secular. The, Israel is mostly secular. It's not, if people think it's this Jewish paradise, a lot of the people there that have moved to Israel are Jewish, of course, but they're not practicing Jews. And what do I mean by that? It, do I think there's a a racial identity no, not really, although the, uh, they have separated themselves, obviously, because uh, God's word uh, has taught that. But there's a lot of people who are the descendants of uh, Jewish converts, uh, the Ashkenaz. The Ashkenaz are the descendants of people who converted to Judaism uh, in the uh, um, post-Christian uh, post-Jesus era, uh, like 9th century, 10th century, around in there. But that being said, um, does it matter? No, it doesn't. Um, the fact is that uh, the real split is between Jews and Muslims. Uh, the Palestinians are making claims about how their land was stolen and that kind of thing. In some cases, I'm sure it was. Um, in other cases... Uh, I'm sure it was obtained legally, and uh, um, it, when the uh, um, Jewish people started moving back to Israel, especially with greater intensity after the uh, the end of World War II and the Holocaust, um, a lot of them were looking for a place where they could go and say never again. And they went. And they went back to their traditional homes. There were always Jews in that area always jews in palestine had been for uh millennia and continued to be after the uh, uh ottomans uh took control of that area and the muslims became the majority uh there were still jewish people there uh had been continued to be and uh um we need to understand all that it's all part of the picture. I don't. I don't want to make this an Israeli-Arab conflict. But what do we have going on here? I brought up our uh, politicians kind of coming down on sides, and people coming down on sides on this thing based on uh, a lot of false assumptions. And I just laid some of those out. Um, now, do I think that? Uh, the Jews have a special place in God's plan. Seem to, because uh, uh, Paul in Romans makes it rather clear that uh, that the Jews are going to convert to Christianity at some point. Uh, now, they going to all of them going to do that? No, just like uh, here in the West, not everybody's a Christian. Um, in uh, you know, we have a lot of people who live in a culture 
and have no religious affiliation at all. They call themselves agnostics. They call themselves atheists. They call themselves spiritual and are involved in Eastern religions and those kinds of things. And yet we, uh, a lot of people still refer to us as a, a Christian nation. Why is that? Well, folks, if you were paying attention during, uh, uh, over the last four weeks, I ha I have, this is my first recording in a while. Uh, but over the last four weeks, I ran three weeks of um, God, my God and Government series. Why did I run the God and Government series? Because we need to understand that the basis of our government is Christian. That's what makes us a Christian nation. It's not that everybody's a Christian. It's not that we force Christianity on everybody. We don't. We have a tolerance policy here. Uh that's part of the genius. We didn't come out and say we're we're uh, going to be Presbyterian. We're going to be Anglican. We're going to be Methodist. We're going to be Quaker. We're going to be this or that or another thing. Now, many states did that. Many states had uh, um, specific religions that they supported. Uh, congregational church in uh, uh, one of the last places, believe it or not, to stop having an established church in their state was Massachusetts. And it was congregationalism. What does that mean? Congregationalism is a, is a generally reformed, generally reformed, and the congregation runs the political structure of the church. They don't have a central body around which they uh, um, use to govern all the churches in a district. They're simply run by the congregation itself. Uh, elders are appointed. Uh, deacons are appointed. Pastors are, are appointed uh, by officers chosen within the congregation and generally congregational meetings. I, I'm a Presbyterian, which means we have a, uh, a thing called a presbytery. We're in, I'm in the, uh, the uh, Presbytery of Ohio in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And what that means is we have a uh, presbytery that is not headquartered in any specific area. It constitutes uh, Western Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Ohio, Indiana, and Eastern Kentucky. What does that mean? All the churches are members of a presbytery. That means that oh, a couple times a year, uh, spring and fall, we have what's called a presbytery meeting, and it's held in different churches around uh, in the presbytery. Uh, it generally goes... Eastern Presbytery, Central Presbytery, Western Presbytery. Okay, so sometimes it'll be in Pennsylvania. Sometimes it'll be in Ohio. Sometimes it'll be in Indiana. Uh, sometimes it'll be in Kentucky. Sometimes it'll be in West Virginia. It just depends. Uh, and it's chosen by the Presbytery. Uh, we generally don't go to the same church twice in a row because we try to mix it up. We want everything to be done that way. But a congregational church just says, nope, we'll run it internally. Now, in our presbytery, 
we also have a general assembly, and that is every Orthodox Presbyterian church in the country is a, can send delegates to the general assembly. And the general assembly generally takes care of, oh, things like, uh, um, setting, um, uh, it will adjudicate cases that the presbytery has sent to it. Um, cases of discipline, cases of, uh, uh, complaints from one church against another, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, that's how, that's how that works. Okay. What does that all mean? In the United States of America, we have adopted more or less a Presbyterian form of government. The federal government is supposed to be the final arbiter on a number of things, and the, and the state governments are supposed to be the arbiter on a number of things, and we mostly govern ourselves locally, or at least we used to. Okay. Now, that being said, we've got these splits coming in on how much power the central government should have versus how much power the states and local governments should have. This is the, the main split amongst us, and there are people in the Republican Party who side with the Democrats on extremely strong uh, central government. Now, historically, that's not the way it used to be. It used to be reversed. It used to be that the Democrats were uh, strongly for uh, local governments, state governments, and a limited federal government, and the Republicans were the opposite. They were they were strong central government, uh, weak and weak to the point of being non-existent state governments and local governments, uh, with the federal government setting the pace, and that all changed in a, in an election in 1912, uh, which is neither here nor there. Uh, but this is why we have splits. We have deep splits along these lines. What, what is the meaning of the Constitution? You're not allowed to... This is the strangest thing to me. When you appoint judges, you're not really allowed to ask what their judicial philosophy is. You're not allowed to ask if they are a strong federal government or weak federal government. You have to take it from their rulings. And a lot of these guys, when they go through hearings at the at the Senate, when they're being appointed to a federal position, don't pay really close attention. It's up to grassroots groups to get together and look at their record and say, we don't want this person. This is why, if you'll remember when Barack Obama was president, he appointed in his last, his lame duck year, his last year uh, in he he couldn't run again, and he wasn't going to be president anymore after 2016. He tried to appoint Merrick Garland, who's the current uh, attorney general. He tried to appoint him to the Supreme Court and tried to force it through. And Mitch McConnell, to his credit, uh, said, no, we're not even going to give him a hearing. And if you remember, there was a hue and cry, this is unprecedented, blah, 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 and and everybody said, no, it's not unprecedented at all. A a president who's on his way out is not supposed to, uh, by not by constitutional uh, fiat, but by, uh, by tradition, is not supposed to appoint a Supreme Court judge. It's supposed to be left to the incoming president. 
Well, they didn't want that. Um, they really didn't want that because, uh, at the time, everybody kind of thought that, uh, Hillary was going to be the next president, which as far as Barack Obama was concerned, that would be fine. She would appoint someone that would be acceptable to his wing of the democratic party, his and her wing of the democratic party. Cause if you remember, she worked for him as a uh, secretary of state, I think. Yeah. Secretary of state for a time. Um, okay. Who came in Donald Trump? Well, that's why everybody howled. We should have gotten Merrick Garland in. Well, Merrick Garland is proving that he had no business being anywhere near a Supreme court seat. Now, had, had they been able to force it and force hearings, chances are the uh, Republicans who were stupid would have voted to uh, confirm Merrick Garland. And this is uh, what we're getting as attorney general is what we were gotten in spades at, for, with him on the Supreme court. This is why, uh, we need to be very careful about, about these things. Okay. So these deep splits are what are really, really, really what we're dealing with. Um, and how's it working out for us? Well, th there's a lot of people who believe in individual f freedom and freedom from being uh, surveilled and freedom of speech and the right to keep and bear arms and the right to uh, uh, non-self-incrimination, the fourth and fifth and sixth, well, the whole Bill of Rights, uh, the limitation of federal power and the... Uh, uh, the non-allowance of the usurpation of state power by the federal government. Um, a lot of people are split on those ideas. They're a-okay with, with what's going on in places, uh, to, uh, strip people of their rights, but let's not take that too far. And by that, I mean, we're seeing a microcosm of it here in our own electoral politics. Well, what do I mean by that? I mean, issue one. I, I'd like to talk a little bit about issue two. Maybe many of you don't even know it's on. I haven't seen anything, any signs, any advertisements, anything on issue two. All issue two is a uh, uh, isn't to allow recreational marijuana use. That's what issue two is. If you really want recreational marijuana use without the you know without the facade. And that's what it is, a facade of medical marijuana use. Um, then, okay, there you go. A lot of people don't know what issue two is. I'm, I'm giving you the straight skinny. It's about, recre if you really think recreational marijuana use uh, is a good idea, then, okay, then vote for that. Otherwise, I would advise you to vote no. <laughs> Uh, because recreational marijuana use is a stupid idea. Uh, it's been a, uh, it's created an underclass. Uh, and no matter what you're told, uh, long-term marijuana use leads to a number of mental issues, depression, uh, sometimes schizophrenia, uh, you know, it's not one of those things like the old uh, reefer madness movies where you take your first puff of dope and and you know you're you're off to the insane asylum. That's that's not, that's not what I'm talking about here. 
uh, no, long-term recreational marijuana use uh, leads to a number of, of mental and attitudinal things. Um, and I, I think it's a bad idea. Okay, that being said, let's go to issue one. Yeah, I've only got about 10 minutes or so to go. So I want to get to the text of uh, Article 1. Now, first of all, you're probably seeing ads that are nothing le less than propagandistic uh, from the pro-Article 1 side. Uh, uh, the one I love is uh, these people want to turn back the clock on our rights, our, our, our rights of uh, our reproductive rights. Okay, let's stop for a minute. There are, is no right to an abortion. The Supreme Court cannot create a right. Rights are a gift from God that you have from birth. Government does not grant rights. Government guarantees rights. It, it protects them. This is, again, why I ran the God and Government series again over three weeks. Because we need to understand that our rights are our rights by birth uh, and a gift from God, not as a gift from government. So government cannot grant the right to an abortion because God has not given the right to abortion. Okay? So, in other words, government's job is to protect life, liberty, and property. Nothing else. Protect life, liberty, and property. What does an anti-abortion law do? It's a pro-life abortion. It protects the life of the unborn. It protects the liberty of the unborn. It protects, you could say property. Uh, you are not owned by yourself. You're owned by God. Even if you're an agnostic, even if you're an atheist, you are not your own. You are owned by God. So we'll say life and liberty are protected by uh, the law that says you can't have an abortion. Um, I've seen uh, other propagandistic takes on this that have to do with, uh, uh, my doctor told me our beloved child uh, could not possibly live, and therefore we had to go to another state uh, to have an abortion because my baby wouldn't live, um, and uh, um, I've seen the, they had pictures of the little feet on a card and you are loved and all those kinds of things. No, if you loved your child, you would allow it to be born and live for as long as God uh, commanded. Uh, if the uh, doctors tell you, well, that child won't be born alive. I've heard, how many times have I heard this? Your child will not be born alive or it will survive only a short time only to have the children come out and be sometimes perfectly healthy, sometimes survive a short time, sometimes uh, be uh, genetically damaged, and yet does genetic damage um, preclude the right to live as long as you can? The answer is no. Now, you could say, well, the child's unaware. Yeah, the child probably is unaware. But do, does that child have the right to life? And the answer is yes. Another thing is the unviable tissue mass or the protoplasm blob. This is so stupid. This is so non-scientific. It's unscientific. 
that argument, if you hear that, the, the unviable tissue mass or the protoplasm blob, folks, you should immediately say how many, the first question that should come to your mind, how many cells does it take to be human? How many cells do you have to have before you're considered to be human? What size do you have to be before you're considered to be human? The answer is one. One cell. One cell is all you need to be human because that cell can't become anything else. And it is a separate being. Yeah, can you say, doesn't have a brain, doesn't have a heart, uh, doesn't have organs. Yeah, you're right. Yet. And yet it's a human being. And it is its own entity. Uh, you can argue, uh, well, the, the chances of that one cell surviving and implanting and doing blah, blah, blah are only this much. Yeah, you're right. And you know who's in charge of that? God is. God decides which ones of the uh, single cells or eight cells or whatever stage they're at do the thing they're supposed to do. God decides that. Sometimes God brings miscarriages at a very early stage. My wife and I had that problem. We had a miscarriage. The baby was maybe weeks old, maybe a couple weeks old, two, three. And I still remember my wife calling me in. She goes, I think I had a miscarriage. And we'd been having to try, trying to have kids for months. And I went in and looked and I go, yeah, I'm pretty sure you just had a miscarriage. Uh, I knew what to look for. I'd had embryology. I'm, I was a bio, I'm a biochemist and I had taken an embryology class and I go, yeah. And the doctor asked us, <laughs> I'll never forget this. The doctor asked us, did you fish it out? And I'm like, no, no, we didn't fish it out. Uh, was it a human being? Yes, it was fully human. Uh, not fully developed, not a fully developed human, but it was fully human. Uh, this is the problem we run into. We, we fall into these traps where we allow these propaganda terms to uh, take precedence over our thinking. Well, the bottom line is that any anti or any uh, abortion argument in which that those kinds of arguments are made, unviable tissue mass, protoplasm, uh, it's, uh, it's not fully developed. It's not, again, the whole idea that underlies it. If you find yourself falling into this trap and thinking these things, here's what you're denying. The humanity of the fetus. You are denying the humanity of the fetus. Is it human or not? And if it's not human, then what is it? You can't go back. It's, it's a circular argument to say that it's just a blob of protoplasm or it's an unviable tissue mass. That's a circular argument. What is it? You know, if, if I find a severed hand in the woods... I go back in my woods and I find a severed hand. What am I going to go look for? I'm going to go look for the person who had the hand severed. Right? 
Is that hand human? Is it a separate human? It was part of a separate human being. That's easily told by fingerprints, by the DNA in the tissue of the hand. So what am I going to do? I'm going to go see why someone lost the hand and hope, hopefully help them. Why? Because they're a human being who has lost a piece of themselves. That's the bottom line. A six cell or an eight cell or a 16 cell fetus is a human being. Now, here's my question on this, this woman who had this abortion, uh, had to go to another state to get an abortion and they had the little card with the little feet prints. How'd you get those footprints? Uh, what kind of an abortion did you have? Because most of the abortions uh, tend to be, at that stage, tend to be saline or chemical injection followed by uh, a vacuuming out of the remains of the fetus. It, they're dismembered. The dead fetus is dismembered by vacuum and, and removed. How'd you get those? Did you dig them out of the, out of the vacuum container? The, uh, it, it's not like a vacuum cleaner. It's a, it's a, a medical device. Uh, but how did you get those feet? Or did you, d did they do the thing where the fetus is expelled intact, which basically amounts to a birth? Chances are uh, that it was dismembered. I, I when I saw this thing, I went, "Oh my gosh, this is the worst propaganda I have ever seen." Um, and it has nothing to do with turning back the clock because you did not have the right to take that child's life because it would be uh, terrible for you and your husband to give birth to this child and have it die. It did die, and the whole argument behind this is that well it wasn't fully human yet so therefore it didn't have the right to live because it would be painful for my husband and I losing children is painful my when my wife and I miscarried it was painful my wife cried for a couple of days and I was also very sad why well obviously we had a a potential child we had a human being that was not able to develop fully. And it turned out that one of the problems was God is merciful in a lot of these cases. This child probably would have been uh, damaged because I had some genetic issues. Not genetic, mine were physical. That would cause uh, genetic issues. And once I got my physical problem fixed, uh, I have three daughters who have all given, uh, two of which have given me beautiful grandchildren. My sixth grandchild is currently under construction. We don't think of it as anything other than a baby. Why? Because it's a baby. It's a child. It's a human being. My daughter steadfastly avoids doing things that might damage this human being under construction. When my uh, middle daughter gave birth to her most recent child and all her children, she took great pains to avoid doing things that would do damage to those, those babies under construction. Now, my first daughter had to come early. Why? Because my wife was preeclamptic. According to what's going on in issue one, 
my wife could have had an abortion right up to the time when the baby's head crowned. Why? Because it was her quote-unquote choice to kill this baby when she wanted to. The baby didn't have a right to life, according to uh, article or the, the, the full text of the proposed amendment. This, this is a major problem. This is why you, even if you are for certain kinds of medical abortions, uh, for instance, one of the big deals that's being made, one of the big propaganda things that's being made out of this amendment, there's no exception for rape or incest. Well, of course there's not. Because, again, we're presuming the non-humanity of the child under development. We're assuming that it, it's simply this unviable tissue mass, this blob of protoplasm, and it's an invader. I've heard this argument many, many times. It's an invader. Why? Because it was due to rape or incest. No, it's a human being. It is a human being. The argument, then, is that for some reason... The the that we should apply the death penalty because that's what it is. You are killing this person for the crime of having been conceived. That we should apply the death penalty to the unborn. What is wrong with that picture? What did this unborn person, this human being, this person, what did they do to warrant being murdered? in the womb? The answer is nothing. Nothing. If you believe that um, that, that is a non-human, how do you deal with after the birth of... Now, do I expect a woman who has been raped to necessarily want to keep a child that is born out of that rape? No, I don't necessarily think that's the case. And yet, yes, it, it's, it's the result of this monstrous act by a monstrous person. And yet it's partly yours as well. Now, the idea that somehow I just can't be confronted with it and I don't want anyone else to ha have uh, a chance to raise this person because the father's personality may may hold sway. Maybe, maybe not. And you're assuming that uh, this was a personality issue that caused this behavior in this man who did this monstrous act. It's not necessarily. It may be more nurture than nature. That's an argument we have never solved, ever. We have never solved the nature-nurture question. Is a personality more nature? Is it more nurture? We don't know. And the idea that we do, and that's a justification for aborting an innocent child, is all based on the idea that we're, uh, there are some that will tell you that we're merely automatons. We're robots. We're, we're meat robots, if you will. 
we're prisoners of our of our uh of our genetic makeup is that true the answer is no almost f- for sure anybody who who's involved in in understanding genetics and and that kind of thing will tell you no 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 there yes is there determinism sure a lot of your personality is is set by your uh by your genetics but not all of it a lot of it is based on your upbringing it's based on your siblings it's based on your parents it's based on your surroundings um it's based on a number of things um you'll find that most monstrous people that do monstrous things live monstrous childhoods not all of them some people were were raised and and were given love and affection and and uh um, do horrible things. Um, I, you know, you, you can't question that. What do you do about it? Well, you punish those who actually commit the crimes. You don't pre-punish them by assuming they're going to do that and murdering them in the womb because that's what it is. You execute them in the womb and the fact is you've done that because... It's for your own convenience. And same thing with incest. Do I think incest is a good thing? No, certainly not. Um, and, you know, what, what you find is that cousins or maybe brother and sister, although it's hard to imagine. But it depends on, again, the uh, upbringing of uh, with the parents and the, the family situation and that kind of thing. It may be cousins. It may be, uh, in a lot of cases, that's that's what it would be. How dangerous is that? Oh, it's it's horribly dangerous for the child to be born out of an incestuous relationship. It depends. Um, usually one generation um, doesn't bring too much trouble. In fact, any trouble in, in a lot of cases. Uh, all you have to do is look at the royal families of Europe. Now, you may point to the Habsburgs and the horrible genetic damage they had. Yes, that's true. But if you look at their family tree, it's mostly trunk. There's not a whole lot of leaves out there. Um, What I mean by that, there are people that were double cousins. Um, They were cousins because they were were related to both sides of the previous marriage. And what you'll see is people marrying cousin, marrying cousin, marrying cousin, marrying cousin. Well, what does that do? It creates serious accumulative genetic damage. Um, there are, are very isolated communities that get studied all the time for these, this genetic damage. But what's the, uh, what's the hallmark of that? It's multi-generational. It's not a single thing. Not a single generation. It's multi-generational. And I think in terms of the Amish... The Amish are a very tight-knit and very small community, and they intermarry. Uh, They end up marrying second cousins, third cousins, and that kind of thing, Uh, sometimes first cousins. Why? Because that's the only people available in their community. Uh, And same thing with uh, uh, certain European Jews. Uh, They have have, uh, well-known genetic uh, disorders, Tay-Sachs disease and that kind of thing. It comes from being in ter- very tight-knit communities in which uh, there isn't a whole lot of genetic diversity. Um, not a whole lot of uh, um, changes up in genes. 
genes. Does that mean that they should be? Uh, they have the potential to be uh, genetic uh, anomalies with uh, you know diseases and things. No, they have the right to life. They have the right to life. And until we get that through our heads, um, you have to adopt the mindset that a human being is a human being, whether it's one cell, two cells, four cells, eight cells, 16 cells, 32 cells, on and on and on and on. Again, I would ask, how many cells before you're human? And the answer is one. How many cells before the right to life attaches? One. Who has the right to remove that right to life? God. Not you. And that's the bottom line on this problem. We really believe that we have the right to make that determination. And it's not just secularists. It's people in the evangelical church. I'm speaking to some of you who came out and voted no uh, on issue one in August. Many of you turned out. Many of you, you women turned out and voted no on that because they knew where that would lead on this issue. Where did it lead on this issue? It left us to the place where we have to get more than 50% saying no. In, in the case, if that had passed in August, we would have needed more than 60% saying yes to pass it. Some of these same women who are, many of them are evangelical. Um, the uh, Unofficially, a lot of the women who came out and voted who were of childbearing age were conservative, evangelical, and would consider themselves in the pro-life camp. But they did not want to give up the right in, just in case anything happened to them. They wanted to keep that door open. And if, if I'm speaking to you, please take it the way it's meant. I want you to reconsider your position. That is a human being. And you should want to close the door on the idea that that human being can be um, treated like the babies in the, in the Israeli conflict and simply a little later in the process. You let them get born and, and uh, grow a little bit, and then you behead them and burn them. It's, uh, 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 take this in the, in the, what it's, it's not that far different. You can burn, cut, burn, and poison them in the womb, or you can cut, burn, and poison them outside the womb. It's the same reverence for life, which is none. That's the problem that we have. Okay, I want to go into the full text of the proposed amendment. Obviously, I'm out of time. And if you're mad at me, good. Send me an email. Uh, it's uh, uh, chairman at principledpolicy.com. That's chairman at principledpolicy.com. Uh, send you the website if you want to hear this again, www.principledpolicy.com. That's principledpolicy.com. And I invite you to go out there. I'm, I'm trying to fix a problem with security. 
on there and I'm having a little trouble with GoDaddy. So uh, keep watching, keep going there. Uh, I'll have it fixed here pretty quick, but uh, um, you can get around the issue as it stands. Uh, there are ways to do it with your browser. But uh, you know what we think, and we want to know what you think. www.principledpolicy.com, and that's principledpolicy.com. And join us again next week for another Principles and Policies.